When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bootkaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. This week, Bosmang Aaron is back. We're covering what is arguably the climax of the book. We'll talk a little bit about that. Is it a climax or an anticlimax? Comic Steve Osborne and I cover the season finale of season five. We get to hear Steve getting his feelings about Jon Snow in this podcast, which I'm pretty excited about. Steve and I are launching two new podcasts. One is called Perfect Stranger Things. The other is called Cocoons of Horror. I think that they're both available now. The Bird's Eye View this week is a short excerpt of Steve and I's coverage of The Last Duel. Only mild spoilers here, but go see it. Go see The Last Duel and then follow us on Cocoons of Horror. Without further ado, here is Bosmang Aaron. Hello. Hey, uh, no video, although I like the, the red light, whatever. You're, it's very horror-themed, I suppose. Uh, do you want me to turn the video off as a messing your bandwidth up? or? Yeah, you can you can turn it off. It, it seems weird for me <laughs> not to have it and you to have it. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, I, your face. Get get, get it off. Uh, just, <laughs> can, can, can you make less of that happen, sir? Just a little bit less of you would be nice. You just, you just, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> oh, man. This was a short chapter. This was the Jesus wept of Game of Thrones. You know what? A lot of these chapters are short. It's it's a little bit goofy in that, you know, you're supposed to, you know, the, the premise of this podcast is to kind of make a meal out of each chapter. But especially with this first book, a lot of times Martin will like, no, I said what I want to say. I'm moving on. Let's let's get back to whoever we're, you know. Oh, also, I guess with Ned, Ned gets more chapters than the others. That's true. I, but I, I remember this being a bigger production. Um, but I don't know. It's a, I, I really enjoyed reading this chapter. It's like so dynamically written and also just so deliciously ironic on rereads. Yeah, this is one that really rewards you for the reread, you know. Yeah, for sure. So I guess one could argue, Aaron, that this is the climax of the book. What do you think about that? It, Bold statement. It's, it's definitely... Uh, I, I feel like, okay, when, when, cause I, I was one of those dirty, filthy casuals that watched a show before I read the books mm-hmm. and when I was watching a show. I got I got to admit that I, I kind of set up in my, my chair a little straighter at this scene, but I think the true climax, the one where it's like, it, it definitely puts you into, Oh, this isn't your, your, your father's uh, Tolkien story is when Ned actually gets chopped. Right. So like, I think it's it's definitely the the penultimate uh, 
uh, a part of the story. Do you, right. do you think it's, it more befits a climax? I think, all right, I've been thinking about this all day, actually. So I'm glad that you said that. Because I was going to, I could make an argument, and I think I can convince myself of the argument that this is the climax of the book. Just of where it's placed and all of this business about, you know, if if you're following the main plot of this of the story, it's kind of building to this point. And I think that upon first read, this would absolutely strike me as the climax. But I think I could also convince myself that this is something of a false cl climax. In other words, it feels climactic enough mm -hmm. so that when Ned loses his head mm -hmm. you're like you were sufficiently fooled into thinking oh no that you idiot that wasn't the climax this is the climax yeah yeah that's definitely more of a gut punch but i think this is a little bit of a gut punch because it's written like on first read this is just ned completely in command like Oh, look at this, these Lannister people practicing out in the yard, mm -hmm. doing all this dumb show for my benefit. Yeah. Oh, Cersei's such a fool. Cersei, Cersei must be more of a fool than I thought. Why didn't this woman <laughs> extricate herself from this? I gave her every chance. And yeah. meanwhile, like there's so many flashing in, in, you know, subsequent reads There's so many flashing red warning signs that he just <laughs> completely blows through. Mm -hmm. But like, it does remind me of like, um, you know, reading a piece of heroic fiction where the guy is just, you know, he's, he doesn't want any bloodshed and he wants everything to be orderly. And he, mm -hmm. he feels real bad about getting vengeance over his enemies and getting the upper hand, but by God, he's going to get it. And yeah. You know, uh, there's like there's a great scene where he reflects when he's going into Joffrey's throne room and there's all the King's Guard and the Lannister right. guards all all lined up. And he's like, ah, this is uh, the last time I was here is I was chasing Jamie Lannister off the throne. <laughs> yeah, sure. I wonder if jo Joff will be as easy. He never that doesn't consider whether it's possible or not or whether he's going to get it done. Just like, oh, will it be as easy as the last time? Right. And that's a lot. That's pretty funny. Pretty, pretty good ha-has on second reads. You know what? I wonder if a lot of the Ned derision that I've experienced pretty much as for as long as I've had a relationship to this book, the meta commentary around the book is about deriding Ned Stark, how stupid Ned is. And of course, this podcast is as guilty as any, but I think that I wonder how much of that is something that you only realize upon reread like how many readers if they're honest with themselves read this for the first time and would have made decisions differently than ned would have it's tough or if it's just like oh yeah we're we're brilliant we're strategic geniuses because of course we have the benefit of hindsight well it's tough because like i think you are thinking that it's following the kind of medieval fantasy logic that a lot of these you know heroic epics follow where it's like you know, even when it's against all odds, mm -hmm. you should always stand up to evil because standing up to evil is good. And, right. you know, honor is and truth are right. And those things are going to win out in the long term. And, you know, that's the key. I, I do think like in in term in long term, like that stuff tends to, you know, a long arc of history has been towards, you know, justice or whatever. But in the short yeah. term, it can be a bitch. Like it's like you even for counting cards on Vegas, you can lose one hundred thousand dollars in an hour just because the odds are against you, you know? Yeah. So like, 
Um, but that would never happen to Aragorn, right? Aragorn would never. I was just thinking about Aragorn. I was thinking this passage may have an analog in the two towers when Aragorn and Gandalf go in to see Theoden. And he's mm. like, you know, he's been totally corrupted by Wormtongue or whatever. And they go in and basically they speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. And Gandalf uses his magic exorcism stick to fix Theoden, and the and the good guys win, right? Well, and it's another like another great example from the holy texts is when uh, Aragorn rides up to the Black Gates, and uh, right. a book only or ex- extended edition only, the mouth of Sauron meets him, like this you know lieutenant of Sauron, uh-huh. and there there it's 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 kind of a false diplomacy, but he's like there to accept uh, their surrender and. Aragorn essentially tells him, nah, you ain't shit. And uh, tell 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 uh, Sauron to go stick this up his butt. And 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 he cows the guy yeah, like right. like it's almost like the force of his righteousness exposes the mm. mouth of Sauron as a coward and he just collapses. And then, of course, Aragorn wins. But right. like and get George Martin's like, OK, but what if those black gates open and all nine black riders come out and just tear Aragorn in half and it's some kind of you know Robert Rodriguez film and it's just blood everywhere and the bad guys get slaughtered you don't seem as cool anymore do you and (laughs) Ned is Aragorn that just gets his ass ripped into at the black gates that's right you know because and and even I think there's I I was doing a little bit of side reading on this and someone asserted I didn't look it up because that you know you only you only paid me to do one chapter Anthony um (laughs) But someone says that in, uh, I think, A Clash of Kings, Cersei, in one of her private recollections, thinks back to this and thinks that if Sansa hadn't have told her, given her advance warning, even Ned going up and, you know, essentially giving her 24 hours notice to get the hell out, wouldn't have given her enough time. Sansa gave her the additional time to grease all the palms and do all the dirty deals and all. So, like, Ned almost beat Cersei if it weren't Mm. for the the carelessness and and naivete of, of Sansa. Interesting. Um, he still would have won, or at least yeah. independent of Cersei, who is also a giant idiot. So I don't know. Okay, I'm going to read a synopsis, and then we can talk more about it. Okay. Ned wakes to the sound of Lannister men practicing at joust. He notes that this means that Cersei hasn't fled the city and laments this fact. After breakfast with his daughters, Pycelle informs him that Robert is finally dead. Ned holds back his emotions and calls for the small council to be convened in the Tower of the Hand. Salmi, Baelish, and Varys arrive. Then Ned learns that Renly has fled the city with Loras and company. Pycelle reads Robert Baratheon's final letter. Then Ned asks to be confirmed as Lord Protector. Before confirmation, the council is summoned to the throne room to voice fealty to Joffrey. Joffrey, from the throne, demands coronation within the fortnight and oaths of fealty immediately. Cersei, after ripping up Robert's letter, advises Ned to kneel and return safely to Winterfell. Ned reveals his treasonous conviction that Joffrey has no right to the throne. Swords are drawn and the city watch, to Ned's surprise, has taken the side of the Lannisters. Baelish takes his knife back and holds it to poor Ned's throat. So, do you want to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I climb the ladder of chaos? Do I have to pick just one? <laughs> you don't, but this I, this chapter is heavy with the ladder of chaos. I mean, you got Baelish's uh, fingerprints that, all over it. It's true, true. Um, okay, let's okay, let's start there. Let's start there. Because um, I actually, this is something that um, 
you know, was often said that there's some differences in book Baelish and show Baelish. Mm -hmm. And I was always quick to defend show Baelish because I liked the show and I thought it, you know, and, and uh, I, I didn't think it besmirched the character by any stretch of imagination. But one thing um, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about some of those old criticisms that like show Baelish in season one, everyone says like, you, no one trusts Peter, you know, no one trusts Littlefinger, Littlefinger's untrustworthy, Littlefinger, mm -hmm. you know, only a fool would trust Littlefinger, et cetera, et cetera, right? Book Baelish is not like that, especially in the first book. Peter Baelish is friend to all. He makes your political problems go away. If you're, you know, out of gold dragons, he can rub two together and make four. Uh, he he he's he's all about like ingratiating himself to people and and keeping their confidences it's like i feel like um we we i feel like a lot of people think that like peter baelish was always the sneaky hardcore master manipulator but like he had the massive base of power and you're kind of seeing in uh, baelish in the game of thrones book on as kind of like getting as high as he can go and then really do you know like like cashing in his chips kind of like hmm. but like it, it it i will say kind of as a defensive ned stark in book one uh, Littlefinger seems a, a much more likable uh noble uh you know friend the cats family friend like there there's a there, it, it seemed like a lot less foolish of 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 ned to trust him than it did in the show well Agree here's the thing about baelish I mean, mm -hmm. this guy has got brothels over the city. He takes he's taking Ned to brothel after brothel and like telling him, "Hey, fondle the breast here, or there, Ned. You know, you blend in." This is all very yeah, distasteful. This is all very distasteful. But 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 it doesn't work on Ned. It would work on like almost everybody, uh, you know, else. And right. like it's it's almost like a moral. Uh, it's almost a moral disapproval not like you know objectively well peter baelish is a known liar and he's a con man and stuff it's just like oh you know i i guess can a vegas casino owner not be right. a, a moral upright man probably not actually no but <laughs> uh no well, yeah, your point he has going for him is that ned distrusts varus and Littlefinger mm -hmm. and varus seem to be at odds and so it's almost sure. like Ned's thinking, well, I've got to trust somebody. And, of course, Cat trusts him. So, all right, I'll trust him. And then in this chapter, it really, like, have, the metaphor is heavy. It's like Ned's got a broken leg that he's hobbling around on, and mm -hmm. he's literally leaning on Baelish walking into the throne room. That's exactly my note says he's literally leaning on Littlefinger to stand. And yeah, yeah, it's subtle, subtle. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. So, no, I think I think that this is another one of those cases where hindsight makes us all geniuses. Of course, of course, yeah. no one should trust Littlefinger. But there are hints. Yeah. There are hints throughout, you know, that, you know, oh, yeah. Tyrion, for instance, kind of calls Cat out on her bullshit and says, mm-hmm. Look, what what are you talking about? That came out of Baelish's mouth. No one trusts Baelish. But of course at this point, Cat doesn't trust Tyrion. So it, it it's sure. kind of a brilliant little trick that you're thinking, well actually I don't know if I can trust anyone in this book. So but you have to make alliances nonetheless. I also like the uh the contrast in the sisters that they kind of reinforce, you know, Sansa who's always tied more to the southern, you know, mm. Tully's uh is is uh on the uh on the 
prospect of returning to Winterfell, she's sullen and dis, dis, disconsolate. Right. But Arya, like at the breakfast table, is wolfing down everything because she's going back home. I thought, you know. Well, yeah. And she gets. That I mean, was super interesting. Yeah. And she gets to bring cereal with her. Or so she thinks, right? So. Well, that's but there's like it's it it's also like there's so many uh, portents in this episode, like Ciro's uh, final lesson. Uh-huh. You got one. You got you got uh, you got the uh, you got time for one last lesson, mm-hmm. and then Ned Ned cautions, it, but a short one. Right. And we know this is going to be their final lesson, and it will be curtailed by uh, several uh, Lannister and Kingsguard goons showing up. Um, I thought that was that was interesting too because I was kind of like yeah. oh gosh, I want to read the next Arya chapter. Yeah, but... one other note from the breakfast scene that I noticed. So you know, Sansa's totally ticked off that she can't say goodbye to Joffrey, and she's you know she's just acting like a brat. And Septim Ordain says, "Your Lord Father knows best." Mm-hmm. And to me, it's like, oh geez, this just like hits you in the face on reread. It's like this is a, to- mm-hmm. a total subversion of the Father knows best theme. And clearly, Ned does not know best. But, uh, you know. No. It, so, anyway. Uh, yeah, Septimordain gets that last line, I suppose. Swing and a miss. I got the sense that Ned, from a previous chapter, I got I got the sense that Ned is carrying around the Valyrian steel knife that was used to, you know, cut Catelyn. Uh, is that true? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think uh, in a previous chapter, it talks about him kind of getting dressed to go see Robert for the last time. And he takes the Valyrian steel dagger and he puts it in his belt. And it gives you an idea that that's the dagger he's carrying around. And in this chapter, that's a little different than the show, is that Baelish actually grabs the dagger from Ned's belt. Presumably that... Uh... Valerian steel. Right. If I'm if I'm tracking, that is the knife, and he holds that knife to Ned's throat, which you know has a little bit of extra juice to it, narrative juice to it, I suppose. Yeah. And then maybe even foreshadows the fact that ice is the is the knife that's going to be used to take off his head. I wonder the. uh, There's also I don't know if you've seen the 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 teaser trailer for the house of the dragon, but they have that damned Valerian steel dagger front and center. And I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. A nice little um, Easter egg for fans. It's being carried by queen Alice and tie tower. Yeah. I wonder if they're building in some kind of like dagger of destiny, kind of like greater, greater world building for that dagger. I wonder if there's someone out there doing a PhD in media studies. That's talking about the evolution of the movie trailer. It's becoming something of an art to create a movie trailer that has at least a dozen Easter eggs to it, right? Because Especially you want it to be like for nerd shit. Yeah. Yes, you want you want it to get poured over on YouTube, and you know you want to give people you want the thirty minute breakdown breakdown videos on on YouTube. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it's it's interesting, you know. Of course, they want to hype up the show or whatever, and that's an easy way to do it. You just got this prop laying around. Why not use it? Yeah, for sure. I thought it was interesting that Ned thinks that Cersei will. He's kind of surprised that she hasn't fled. You know, he thinks mm-hmm. that if I just I, look, I've got this dirty secret, and all I have to do is threaten to reveal the secret. 
you'll do the right thing and the truth will shine forth and you know, she'll scurry you know she'll she's she's like a a cockroach she'll scurry away from the truth so it's almost like he's wearing the truth like a shield of honor or something mm-hmm. and it's just it just kind of it's bizarre to him that cersei has not left and I don't know if you've been watching Succession. Have you been have you been watching Succession? Oh, sore sore bald move topic, Anthony. No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, I I won't reveal any Succession stuff. But there, let me just say this because this is actually has an analog in the real world. Sure. If you are a political leader without a sense of shame, it's kind of a superpower. Mm-hmm. It's like, of course, Cersei's not going to flee. She doesn't feel shame in the same way that Ned would feel shame. Um, she's just going, she's going to push forward. You know, she, she's not going to give up ground because someone else has a true narrative. All she has to do is come up with an alternative narrative and sit right where she's sitting. And in fact, fleeing might make her look guilty. And mm-hmm. I think that this is all sort of lost on Ned. Yeah. And and the fact that like just the world doesn't operate on on his values, like he thinks like the the idea that Cersei is going to be thrown down is a foregone conclusion, you know, because that's the right thing to do. It's it's the the rightful heir, blah blah blah. That is that is an interesting point. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the odds of of Ned actually succeeding, even if the City Watch was on his side. Um, and I was, I was interviewing the medievalist earlier this season and basically this guy was saying, you know, the, a knight is worth about 10 men on a battlefield. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, you know, that the, the knight is horseback and trained to fight on horseback. But so in the book, it says that if he has a city watch, then the Lannister men are outnumbered five to one. But aside from Jamie Lannister, the entire Kingsguard is there. And I'm wondering, even if it, even if they're outnumbered five to one, you've got like six of the best knights of the entire kingdom, plus the Hound. I, I think true. that this is going to be a pretty even fight. Yeah. That might be the case. Um, five to one advantage and the knights are worth. Because like, that's the thing is, I guess, like, would are the gold cloaks the equivalent of like a medieval foot soldier or are they equivalent? Because like they have, don't they have plate mail and they have helmets and they have spears with iron tips? Yeah, um, I mean, they've got, here's the other thing. The knights, they've got, they've got spears. It, I mean, I, I think a lot of the weaponry is like, if you're actually thinking right? about medieval warfare, you know yeah. these these swords are not going to be a match for full on spears. Yeah, yeah, like five uh, spears with the range and and, and those quarters. Like I got maybe maybe that would be the the thing that would carry the day. And Ned's Ned's all wounded, so it's like yeah, he's uh, you he's, know people yeah, Ned is rank him pretty high as a duelist, sure. but he's out of commission for this fight. He's out of commission, and you've got the Hound in full armor. And the Hound is one of the top killers in in all of Westeros. It's pure pure killer. So yeah, I'm just gonna read this little um, section that talks about the Hound. With a single sharp thrust, the nearest gold cloak drove a spear into Tomart's back. Fat Tom's blade dropped from nerveless fingers as the wet point burst out through his ribs, piercing leather and mail. 
he was dead before the sword hit the ground. Ned's shout came far too late. Janos slint, slashed open Varley's throat. Kane whirled, steel flashing, drove back the nearest spearman with a flurry of blows. And for an instant, it looked as if he might cut his way free. Then the hound was on him. Sandrick's first cut took off Kane's sword hand at the wrist. His second drove him to his knees and opened him from shoulder to breastbone. As his men died around him, Littlefinger slid Ned's dagger from his sheath and shoved it up under his chin. His smile was apologetic. I did warn you not to trust me, you know. You know, every now and again, you get the sense that uh, Martin can write an action scene. Yeah, he doesn't do it. Uh, he, he ducks a lot of them, but when he, when he writes one, he writes one. Uh, and it reminded me of, have you seen Rob Roy? Yeah, it has been a long time, though. Uh, but, you know, the climactic fight between him and uh, uh, a guy from Pulp Fiction, where, like, that when he says, is it, he, you know, is that, it that, Roth? That he... It's not it's something Roth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, go ahead. And uh, he, uh, he, he split he, when, when they said the hound cleave that guy from, like, shoulder to breastbone. I think of that because, like, <laughs> Liam Neeson cleaves that guy from, like, shoulder to hip bone. It's truly one of the more horrific sword wounds I've ever seen in a movie. But I always think of that when I think of that scene. Um, notable introductions in this chapter, none. I, I could not find a single notable introduction, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, so, but no, you know. a lot of not- a lot of notable exits, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> notable departures. Poor fat Tom gets it. Mm. Um, we see Varley uh, depart. Mm. We see Kane depart. I'm assuming that there's a number of other guardsmen who are just, you know, red shirts hanging around that also depart. And then, of course, the uh, the show versus book differences. I think the biggest difference in this chapter is there is no small council before this throne room scene. Yeah. Um, you get the whole build up. You know, they're in the Tower of the Hand. And, of course, Pycelle's already looked the letter over. And that's where Ned learns that Robert's dead and, you know, he's holding back his, his emotions. Uh, this all happens kind of in the hallway in the show, you know, Ned's just like limping along and all of a sudden he gets word from someone that King Joffrey has summoned him. And he's like, King Joffrey, what are you talking about? And they said, well, the, the King's dead. So. We have a new king. Yeah, I, I, I guess I kind of prefer the drama. It's, it's hard to say because like the book, you know, has that build up. But I, I guess I like the pure drama of like Ned coming in with the sealed thing, Barristan looking at it. It bears the king's seal, unbroken. You know, like yeah, it, uh, it, it really moves. So Barristan, I believe no man here could ever question your honor. King Robert's seal, unbroken. Lord Eddard Stark is herein named protector of the realm to rule as regent until the heir come of age. May I see that letter, Sir Barristan? Protector of the realm. Is this meant to be your shield, Lord Stark? A piece of paper. Those were the king's words. 
We have a new king now. Yeah, and if you have an economy of time that you're working with, why reveal the letter twice? You know, there's a simpler and shorter way to tell that story that's just as yeah. effective, right? And it, it gives it gives a lot of interior Ned time for him to reflect on what a wise and just uh, ruler he is and how he's just doing all this uh, uh, immaculately. So there's but but yeah, you don't you don't really need that or would appreciate that on a, a TV production. One other uh, show difference is that in the in the book, Marcella's in the room. And she actually asked sort of innocently, mm. like, does this mean Joffrey's not king? You know, it's all, uh, you know, a very innocent question that I think right. I think that you kind of need a child to voice. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, j- just one other difference. Again, I don't know why Marcella's in the room. Uh, this is probably not the place that you want a child, but, you know. I don't know. Got to learn the family business sometime, kid. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. All right, uh, Aaron, it's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me back on. Absolutely. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now Steve and I cover A Mother's Mercy. This is the finale of season five. This is the episode where Sansa and Theon escape and Brienne executes Stannis. And Tyrion begins to govern Marine, but... It is also the episode where Jon Snow gets his. Just a reminder that Steve and I have launched a new podcast called Perfect Stranger Things. Where we're covering the first season of Stranger Things episode by episode. So if you're looking for a New Year's resolution, rewatch Stranger Things with us. What could be more fun than that? Here is Steve Osborne. Steve, what was your reaction to the end of this episode? Yeah, yeah. Well, so I think the last time we talked, I was, you know, I kind of criticized uh, fans who get like, oh no, not this person. Oh no, not that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was a little bit like, oh no, not, not Jon Snow. <laughs> you got your feelings hurt. I did get my feelings hurt a little bit. And I guess, and so, and, and so it caused me to do things that I, I you know, I don't, I, I do look back on episodes and try to figure out like why this, why that, or why that. I'm a little like a little bit like, well, why wouldn't you do this before he goes off to the wildlings and you know essentially brings members of the Night Watch there and puts their life in danger? Like why, why after? Well, that's fascinating. Let's get back to that part because actually there's a lot of talk about that particular issue, but okay. I think before we get there, 
I want to hear like. I, I always feel disproportionately satisfied when I say something that's like, oh yeah, no, that's a point of conversation already. Like, because sometimes, you know, <laughs> it's, I get nervous about these things sometimes because it does feel like a book report. Yeah. Um, but I know I've read the book. So this is, so it's, what's kind of wild is like, I'm learning now at 44 years old. I'm like, oh, so is this what it's like when you read the book you're supposed to do a report on? Like, <laughs> like you'll do good. Yeah, absolutely. Like, that's crazy. If I could turn back time, um, <laughs> I would have. If, I, if yeah, only I, some teacher would have told you along the way, you actually have to read this stuff. Yeah crazy uh all right so i want to hear i want to hear like just the visceral sort of did, did you see it coming all of that business i did not see this one coming like i mean i uh let me rephrase it i every like this episode i think maybe more than previous i was it was a lot of like any time that the camera would be on somebody i'm like something's coming like to their head <laughs> you know just like i had that feeling right. you know it, it had that horse on fire episode feel right yeah. like when when brianna's standing over stannis i'm like oh she's not gonna do it because something's gonna happen like you know yeah sure ramsey's gonna come out and like eat her face off or something <laughs> and it's like it just felt like that kind of an episode so i was i was pretty on edge for a lot well of and i think that a lot of it was like okay so stannis dies there's the big death and uh, marcella dies oh there's the death and Miran trant dies oh there's the death or Miranda <laughs> dies there. Oh, there's the death. And so you, you kind of have your quotient met. Yeah, exactly. It's, but I mean, looking back, if you would have left it like that, you're like, nah, you just killed off characters I don't care about. Right. And then, and the assumption being like, okay, what you've done is you've just given me a volume, a high volume over, you know, like the big death or something. Right. <laughs> sure. uh, yeah. I mean, and, and Stannis is nothing to to sneeze at in terms of. Yeah, he's probably the biggest because of the way it goes down too. Because I mean, that talk about like Game of Thrones showrunners doing the opposite of what they normally do and still delivering the same effect. They have this big sort of anticlimactic, like it seems incongruous, but it's you know an anticlimactic death scene that has as much gravity as a big battle yeah sure sure talk about i mean this season the much maligned season five which i'm gonna i mean you could argue that okay we've seen five seasons that's not really an argument we have I mean, but you, the we could, you could argue that it's the fifth best of the five you know right. maybe yeah sure. Uh, just because there are a little more clunky moments mm-hmm. uh it's like but that, it's like saying that Ringo is the fourth most talented Beatle, you know. Sure, I think I think you're yeah. I, I think that that's that's a spot on, you know. Or going through the Appetite for Destruction song list and you, you know ranking them, and it's like yeah, but like a lot of these would be number ones on, on you know if they just waited for their second album sure. to throw in Mr. Brownstone, you know, we wouldn't have had to have an acoustic remake yeah. of everything else yeah so, so in that way game of thrones is really a victim of its own success how do you follow up a season four well you do your best and one of these things isn't going to work and part of the reason it doesn't work is because it doesn't work in the book so you give it a go and then you realize sure. uh it didn't work on screen either you know that kind of yeah <laughs> so well and and also i think we talked about like the religious uh zealotry and just how much religion played part not just one but like multiple religions on display yeah and really like the idea of zealotry right and i could see that like if you're not into that concept well you're not going to be into season five very much because 
it's pretty heavy with a lot of those. Oh things. yeah, sure. You got the faceless yeah. man. You got the you got the, the, the fire god. You got the fire guy. You you do have. I mean, you have whether you call it religious or just cult. You've got like the sons of harpy concept. You've got, and then at the end, what we have is you have sort of the night's watch following the same level yeah. of zealotry, right? Yeah. Um, these people know that there is a white walker issue. They just know that, and logically you could follow where John is going, but this idea that like they kill him really shows a sense of isolation in my opinion, like this idea of trade. I mean, I guess, you know, okay. I understand like the, the young was Ollie is a young boy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of a powerful moment, but like, you know, cause you, you did get to see him watch his parents die. So that makes sense. Yeah. There's so this, so there's a lot of that, right? So, so religious and zealousness, I mean, obviously in this one, I mean, it's a long drawn out <laughs> shame walk. I mean, oh gosh, that was that was horrible from stress, and it just—I think it takes a, a good forty-five minutes. Uh, yeah, I thought that this was like like there was a point where you know sometimes on YouTube they'll just start showing ads. Like I thought that was going to happen. Uh, <laughs> a lot of there was actually a lot of product placement. If you look, if you look carefully, <laughs> it's not poop they're throwing at her. It's uh, it's Nestle's quick. <laughs> All right, so Heather's reaction to the ending. So Heather's reaction is interesting. And so I don't know if it's, so she, she's gotten to be very intuitive about things. Um, like I, like, I, like I had my, I'll, I'll call it moment. Like uh, before we started the episode, we were talking a little bit about, all right, what's Aria going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, it, like, cause it seemed like it was setting up for, okay. So he likes young girls. She's going to find a way to get in there. I said, I bet you, she steals the face. Yeah, she's so like, you called then, it. So that, yeah. that, yeah, and that becomes a conversation. Where it's like she's like, "Well, can you steal the face?" And I'm like, "Yeah, there's a room full of faces. Take one." <laughs> and so there was, so so there was this like, "Nah, I think the faces are just like they're not like you don't put them on like because she's like, no, they if they come off, they go on. Like he did it with like a little bit of like a, a sleight of hand thing or a magic thing. You don't. They're not like actual Mission Impossible faces. This was a conversation. So then you know the scene starts taking place. I'm like. Ah, rip off that face <laughs> so i was yeah so i was i was right with that i just didn't i mean interesting there was just no like i don't know if it was if it was because like hey we got to cut some things because we really we need to add 40 minutes to the shame walk um but there was no like <laughs> how did she get in there anything it was just she's just there well because i think you know i think that that's on purpose because well, I think most fans would have guessed that that third girl's her. It's like it's the rule of three. It's like of course the third girl's going to be her, right? Right. But if you you want some little element of surprise, if you show how the sausage is made about how she gets into the brothel, right? You're kind of stealing a little bit of that shock at the end. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I and 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 I and it does pay the audience a little bit of respect saying like, sure. I think you, you'll get there. You'll figure you don't need everything laid out. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You didn't watch Drogon's journey back to Marine. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would like, you know, he's getting into adventures. He's like meeting a, meeting a cow. Gets distracted by berries. Wonders if maybe he's a vegetarian now. It's a fun <laughs> little romp. You know, he makes friends with the rabbit, but then he realizes he's hungry. He eats the rabbit, gets a taste for it and kills eight cows. Yeah. Now that I mention it out loud, I'm kind of disappointed that we didn't get that. That's why people hated season seven. 
it's, it's all it's about all, it's all about Drogon becoming vegan for a time. And it feels a little it's a little ham fisted in the in the overall. It's like, okay, we get it, it's probably better for you long term, but like All right. So Heather's reaction. So to the Jon Snow, yeah. I, now I don't, and so again, I was talking about how she's intuitive about things. Like she knew that the kiss was a poison kiss. Oh, she did. Okay. Yeah. She's like, oh, she's dead. She's just poisoned her. And I was like, wow, that's pretty great. You know, like, cause I'm like, sometimes you're just caught in the moment. You're just going for the ride. But then other times, you know, you're trying to, what's this mean? What's that mean? And Heather got that one. So then when I would, the Jon Snow scene, which was just, again, it was, it was fairly relentless. And uh, I think for her, and I don't know if she's in denial or if she's being intuitive. She's like, I don't. I don't think this is the end of Jon Snow. Well, I mean, how many stabs did it like, take? I mean, it's like it's... That's the thing. It was they're like doing a, their best uh, to say, no, you're not going to recover from this because this is the fourth. This is the fifth. And that one's right in the heart. And you're seeing yeah. his eyes open and the blood come out, you know. No, I know. It was... And it was a... Yeah. So, I mean, like, I'm like, well, no, that's that's the thing. But I so I don't know if there was a point where she was just like after everything that had gone through this this season if it's like no nah, i'm not ready to I'm not ready to close the book on john snow yet you know what i mean it's like i think because john snow is another like we've talked about is it has been a slow burn and she revealed she was never really that into rob hmm. so hmm. and i don't think she was all that into uh catlin either so this one feels more like ned i i think i think there's a lot of parallels here between john and ned because Basically, Ned, Ned and John part ways on the road, and they have this conversation about like you, you know you're going to tell me about my this is like second episode I think. Mm-hmm. He's like, next time we meet, I'll tell you about your mother. And so you're kind of thinking, all right, well that's there's more here. This we're going to find some resolution eventually. Those two never see each other again. Ned goes south. We get introduced to King's Landing with ned through ned's eyes but once we have a feel of king's landing and we know all the personalities there ned's not really needed anymore you've been introduced and the same way Jon snow goes up he introduces you to the white walkers everything that's going on at the wall once you have a good handle of everything that's going on up there you know craster's keep all that business all of that you get introduced to that through john's eyes yeah. Once you have done that, Jon Snow has kind of served his purpose. That's fair. Yeah, and I guess the, the Ned parallel does feel similar too, in the sense that we never really get, we only get Ned's backstory through anecdotal stories or this or that. Yeah, but, yeah. but John feels like almost you could have felt like this is the Ned prequel. You know, the way that he sure. develops and the way that he the way that he sort of learns to lead based on what he's observed. And once he's thrust into it, like he makes, he makes really tough decisions. I mean, you look at what Jon Snow does and it's like, as a leader of all the leaders we've seen, you know, outside of Tyrion, like he might have, he might be up there in terms of like big picture. Like it's different to say, okay, we're going to take a risk by sending our people off to war Mm -hmm. versus we're going to take a risk by making allies with former enemies i mean we see some of that sometimes but this one was done with compassion as opposed to purely like a land grab well you know, and, and if, you could almost and, draw a parallel between john and danny here because danny is trying her best to make peace with the city that she's conquered right right and 
even to the point of marrying one of these guys just for politics. Right. And then and it's a big picture moment where yeah. she's like, I don't know this guy. And then John is doing something similar, but it's sort of in reverse. It's like in, he marries Egret and then learns to love this free folk culture, learns that they're human too. And then instead of conquering, you know, he takes the step of vulnerability and invites them into his territory. Maybe this is what the show is telling us. Like, yeah, that kind of weakness is always going to be repaid with certain death. Yeah, it's yeah, and that has been sort of an ongoing reminder that any attempt at altruism, any attempt at settling things down, is folly because it goes back to the parallel that or the the metaphor that Tyrion and Danny use when talk about the wheel. Yeah, huh? Right? Yeah, sure. And like he's and so she's like, I want to break the wheel, and and that is the goal, right? I think that there's that's the intent. I think that was Ned's intent to some degree, but the problem is is that how do you break the wheel while being the wheel? It's a good metaphor because the wheel is, if the wheel is effective, it's in motion. And most of the time you try to break a wheel, the wheel breaks whatever's trying to break it. Okay. That's interesting. So my take on the wheel is that maybe I've always thought about this incorrectly, but the way that she describes it is that this house is on top and then that house is on top and they all just sort of spokes in a wheel and, the common people always get crushed. Mm-hmm. That's what I think that that's what she says. And yeah. so to me, that sounds like we need a new form of government. But maybe I'm thinking about that wrong. Maybe she's just saying, I don't want spokes on a wheel. I don't want there to be a wheel. I just want, I want to be so supremely powerful that if I order the, the land to be in peace, it just is in peace. There's no great families. Yeah, so there isn't this idea of rotation or this or that. It's like, look, let's just, look, I got this. If the wheel is completely broken, there's no turning of power. I'm not going to share any of my power with great families anymore. If I say no more war, there's going to be no more war. And that's just the way it's going to be. You know, I think think she has a sense that, like, that's who she is. Eventually, when she comes into her own, that's the kind of power she's going to have. Yeah, I think I've been thinking about this wrong all of this time. Like, new form of government? Maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe it's just like, I just don't want to share power. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's All right, so I wanted to... Uh, all right, so let's talk about the sort of chronology. Like, why not well, kill say- Snow? Like, why doesn't Alistair kill Jon Snow before they let all the people in? Right. Um, so that's why, again, that's why, like, I had posited the one idea that, like, maybe on some level they do get it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, he does make, because he makes a fairly compelling argument that's kind of hard to argue, really, against. I mean. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of it that way. Okay, so w- here's what I was going to say before. So he does not go north of the wall in the books. Okay. So all of that stuff at Hardhome that we loved, mm-hmm. it never happens in the book. Oh, wow. Uh, which was fantastic, right? Uh, right? And so gives you, you know, gives you a little glimmer of hope for the post content part of the show. So he doesn't ever leave the wall. So there's not a question of before or after he leaves the wall mm. with Alistair Thorne. So, so there is this moment that this this is in the book. As far as we know, John's dead, bleeding out in the snow. That's kind of how the last published book ends. And and here's Why is what he happens. considered a traitor? Why is he considered a traitor if he does goes north of the wall? He sends word to the free folk, and then they kind of come, and he allows them in. Like, he's the one that opens the door to let them in. 
So, so, so time-wise, that makes a little more sense, right? So this is, it's a preemptive strike. In the show now, it's... It's not a preemptive strike the because the free folk are already south of the wall in the book, too. Okay. The, the issue is that John never goes to hard home. Okay. So, and the other thing about what happens in the book is that there's this other warg who has this giant, like, boar that he's kind of eyeballing John and John's eyeballing him. And he's a little bit worried about, will his wolf attack the boar? And so he locks up ghost. So ghost gets sort of like put in this dungeon area, kind of like Danny puts the dragons away. Mm. And as soon as he locks the wolf away, at least I was thinking in the book is like, Oh, well you're dead meat now because Mm -hmm. you just locked away your wolf and people want to kill you. Like, a lot of these wildlings are thinking about killing you and, you know, just you're just totally vulnerable at this point. And then sure enough, he gets stabbed anyway. And and Sam. Yeah, Sam is sent south to become a maester. Maester Eamon goes with them. So it's Gilly, Eamon, Sam and then the baby. And then Eamon dies on a boat. So it's a little different, but it's in, sure. in the same way. You kind of get the sense that he's lost all of his allies in the books right not that sam was gonna really protect him but not really but you know sam would could be good for like you know go let ghost out <laughs> sort of yeah thing. yeah exactly hey talk about dying on a boat i think the way marcella dies i think that mm-hmm. would be how i'd want to go out <laughs> you and your boats man well first a beautiful woman kisses you <laughs> And then you get on a boat. I love. I love the whole thing. And then your and then your uncle die in your uncle father's arms. Well, maybe not learning that my parents are brother and sister. I like that. Maybe that's a part of it. But even then, it's sort of like you don't see your own death coming. And maybe if you get a little bit of news to distract you toward the end, <laughs> so it's like it totally catches you off guard. And there's a little blood on your nose. You're this this cool little galley in the boat area, and you just kind of faint. That that that's that is my way of going out. Perfect. It's a perfect death. Okay. How about you? How do you want to go out? Um, not drowning. I know that. Okay. Not not um, venomous I, snakes. I'm I'm assuming. No, I think uh, I think probably like falling from something really high sounds pretty good. really. Seems like a fun way to go. Huh. Okay. So the moon door. Yeah, I'd moon door. Really? Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, so does that happen in the books? The Marcella? No. Yeah. None of that has happened yet. I mean, it okay. could, it could happen. Oh, actually. Oh yeah. So, cause yes. Okay. So that's fascinating. So I tell you right now, the thing that uh, the takeaway for Heather on this one that probably made her the most upset was Arya going blind. Oh, really? Okay, so let's talk about Arya for a little bit. So I kind of ruined that for you last episode when I said she went full Tarantino. A little bit. So, but, I mean, you probably would have gotten there without me. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't. I knew that I I would have been shocked if she didn't complete the task. But I was just thinking, like, the way that they lit the scene, it was, like, very Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. And once the killing starts, the the eyes getting plucked out, she like stabs out his eyes. And then there's a little bit of that's kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen to her. She goes blind. Yeah. yeah. And he's just as nasty as all get out. Right. Right. And 
And then she says, instead of becoming no one, she makes him no one. Right. So all of that is all of that is sort of gross and fascinating at the same time. But the thing that got her, the thing that got Heather was that she went blind. Yeah, she's like, she's like, I'm, I can't have her be blind now. <laughs> like we, you know, we be following this journey, and it's like, and I think because Arya, not that you think anything good is going to happen to anybody at this point, <laughs> but you're hanging on to these narratives. And you're trusting the narratives, you know, like anytime sure. the Danny narrative feels like a slog, you're sort of like, yeah, hopefully it'll pay off. You know, Tyrion's in a box. Okay, hopefully this will pay off. You know, and, and you, you go through all of those journeys and then you're like, all right, well, you know, Arya's kind of got up. And Sansa's already sort of like, eh, okay, well, that, that didn't work out. With Arya, you're like, okay, she's, she's certainly, you know, never going to be the same and on and on it goes. But then it's like, oh, I think it, it felt like, I'm not, I got to. I gotta follow a blind character now, <laughs> you know, and and how's that gonna work out? And so I, I think there was a bit of compassion because it's like, geez, this poor girl now she's blind on top of it. And well, you ever see the movie Blind Fury uh, with Rutger Hauer? Uh, no, I yeah, not. yes. <laughs> uh, it's you know, I wouldn't recommend a rewatch. <laughs> but a little blind fury daredevil sort of thing happened with Arya. Well, and I'm sure, right? I mean, that's kind of where it feels like it's going to go. But at the same time, it's like, ah, jeez. It's not like she's not going to become a, an assassin. I mean, that's right. We got yeah, too much invested in the assassin. And that could have been, I mean, that could have been your big thing at the end. Because sure. in the same way that Cersei gets her power taken away from her. Right when she's kind of coming into her own, this some, something similar happens to Arya. Um, how much do you want to talk about the Cersei thing? Less time than it took for her to walk. Okay, I just too much. It just you think so? It's too much. I mean, it was relentless, man. But I think it, I, I dug it. Uh, I will I say it, that uh, her character so much more complex now than it ever has been. True, and you kind of got to see that happen on. Lena Headey's face in that I don't know what it was five minutes of that walk. Well, because her face changes so much, so so frequently. Yeah, it's just that. like she's gonna like be stoic, and then you just like she's totally. I mean, everything, every she feels all of the feelings, Steve. Right. Because here's the thing, and it's and this is what makes this this show I think so compelling is that you're like you're reluctant to feel any compassion for somebody. Mm like a Cersei. Mm-hmm. But the time that the the showrunners take to make it go on and on and on, I think feel like the audience becomes like Stannis's wife at some point. Sure. Yeah. I, it's supposed I believe, to be uncomfortable and that's probably what I, I was believe to say. firmly. I firmly believe this person deserves to be, you know, whatever. Look, this person's terrible. Mm-hmm. They deserve whatever comes to them. And then they're like, all right, well, why don't you watch them get the justice you, you believe that they deserve? Mm-hmm. And it's like, ah, man, I don't know. That's a rough watch. You know what I mean? So I think that that's, I think that that's important because there's so much of that happening in the show that is easy to dismiss. So that when you're put in that uncomfortable situation, it changes the way that you react. But then, you know, you know full well that at any given moment, none of these people can do something terrible again. And Well, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, here's the other thing is that, you know, one of the first things we learn about the Lannisters is they always pay their debts, right? Right. 
and there's no one there's no there's no one that is more dangerous to cross than Cersei. Right. The fact that she's just been humiliated in that way. It's interesting. It kind of goes back to Joffrey a little bit. Like the reason he hates Sansa is because she saw what a coward he was with Arya's wolf. Right. And so he was never able to play the game with her, put on a veneer with her anymore. She knows he's a coward. And so he has to try to demonstrate his power over her. Well, I think Cersei in that way, her social currency was completely bankrupt at the end of this episode. (laughs) And then she makes this long walk. And what happens when she goes back in the castle? I'd like to introduce you to Frankenstein's monster who is right, who is not going to rest until all of your enemies are dead. Right. That was because, because the thing is, as she makes her way through, you start to have this moment of like, well, I wonder if, if they broke her. Sure. And there is an element where like, I think when she, when she's in there standing uh, naked in front of everyone that she's responsible for, uh, she then gets handed a weapon, right? A weapon that we have not seen before, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and so if in fact the High Sparrow successfully broke her, uh, there's a there's a monstrous hump. Yeah. <laughs> there's a monstrous guy about to put her back together again, right? I mean, yeah. thing is, it's a little bit, and you're like, like oh no, Cersei, Cersei. <laughs> if anybody's gonna not learn from this or at least gonna feel like they need to repay something it's cersei with a monster it, we never see how palpatine becomes evil mm-hmm. but it's almost like palpatine was kind of evil and then he had to get run through this ringer and be humiliated and then at the end of it someone says okay here's all your power back and by the way may we present you with darth vader right yeah yeah and the mountains does have a little darth vader thing happening Right. Right. No doubt. So there was that. And you just kind of like, oh, this is she is not going to be pleasant. No, no, because the mountain was already a monster. (laughs) And now he's now he's an actual monster. (laughs) Is Heather upset that Stance is gone? And are you upset that Stance is gone? Kind of. I don't know that she's upset. That's I I think she because she loves Stance's voice. She loves Stannis' voice, but you know, you sacrificed your daughter, and that's that's kind of that's kind of a deal breaker for her. Um I think she was more taken by Brienne leaving her her post. Right. For uh for vengeance, right? And because uh, I mean I think and that's and that was such a, that was super compelling because you know, here's somebody who's all about the oath. It's all about her oath, right? Yeah. Now, you could make the argument that she had an oath to Renly, but Renly's gone, and then she switched her oath up. Yeah, so, but I think that the primary oath... This is, a, this is a big problem with oaths. And this is... Jamie calls us out. He's like, look, you can't keep every oath. And how long did she sit there and wait? I mean, how long can you sit there and wait for a candle in the window? Well, okay. Let me, let me counter that with... Stannis is already dead. Okay. Sure. He's not going to make it out of this. She doesn't know so, that, though. Well, the whole thing is wiped out. The whole she saw the army. She knew what it was. They got wiped out. Uh-huh. So he's 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 already you know just because it's not at her hands doesn't mean it's it's uh, not an inevitability, right? So 
so she leaves the post so she can be the one to to off him when he's pretty much already dead to rights it's like yeah your point is that she wants vengeance more than she wants to help Sansa. yeah so 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 this isn't about the oath this is about revenge and and so that that that's where the issue is right so it's not a matter of choosing between two oaths because this one is already kind of taken care of itself um and if that was really that big of a deal to you you would have you would have never taken on this other oath mm-hmm. you would have stayed focused on on the stannis thing and you didn't so leaving leaving her post that felt i think in this house anyway i think that felt a little mm-hmm. uh, i mean it, it adds complexity to to the brand character um, because i think it could be seen as a little a little stilted that she's just hell bent and pure so to have a little bit of a complication like that i think is helpful for the overall character arc but it's also like well i love that that and we're assuming that they jumped into a snowbank and not to their peril right yeah that's that's right that's right and that actually does happen in the book last we hear of theon he has rescued fake Arya. Mm. and that's right because fake Arya is the one that's right so he's rescued fake Arya. um Now, what I like, what I loved about Stannis going out is that what he says to her is do your duty. Right. Because he's all about duty. He's all about like, no, the law says I'm supposed to be king. Right. And, you know, that was his whole thing. And, you know, he wants people to do their duty. These guards who let uh, Ramsey and his saboteurs in, they weren't doing their duty. They, so they're going to have to die. So he respects doing your duty more than anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he realizes, oh, you are the king's guard to Renly. Do your duty. I think him going out that like that was a very fitting way. Yeah, I say so. And I also think that from, you know, Stannis is a smart guy. He knew he's going up against the army of the, the flayed men. Um, you know, having your head lopped off is probably better than what could happen next. <laughs> Yeah, that's not that sounds so bad. Uh, is did, I think he gets stabbed because I was going to do a dismemberment count. There were a lot of people that lost legs and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think. All right, so Mel, who's Mrs. She certain just bounces. She just bounces. It's just to me she's that been was talking so... such. Oh my god, she's been talking <laughs> a big game throughout this for the last what. Three seasons she's been talking this right. big game. Stannis is the prince that was promised, and she just bounces. Because I, when she leaves, I'm like, oh, oh, maybe she's got a, she's she's got a smoke baby out her in her butt or something, right? And like you're waiting, <laughs> waiting for something like that, and then she just rides back to <laughs> to the wall and is like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, things are different. <laughs> she's like, well, I guess I was wrong about that, but you know, life goes on. <laughs> We're getting geared up for the 6th Annual Summer Badass Fest. And while we're working on a slate of apex badass films to enjoy, we've got an early action-packed announcement to make. Just like last year, we're kicking off Badass Season with a live movie watch and podcast recording. We've rented out a theater for connoisseurs of action films and bald move fans that just want to have a great time. Unlike last year, this year's movie is top secret. Hush, hush. No hints. Except, it's incredibly badass. It stars an absolute icon of the genre, 
We're willing to bet most of you haven't seen it, and it's going to be an incredible viewing experience with a packed house of bald movers. Those of you who came to last year's screening of Total Recall know what a party it was. And those of you who didn't, <laughs> now's your chance to experience it. Meet me and Jim, order some custom movie-themed drinks at the theater's full bar, then watch us record the full podcast for the movie. We reserved a venue over twice the size as last year, but seating is still limited. It's happening Friday, 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 June 21st at 7 p.m. in our hometown of Cincinnati. Get full details and buy tickets at baldmove.com slash live. Cincinnati's actually a pretty great city to visit, and we've got lots of details for side adventures on our event page as well. The Reds are playing the Boston Red Sox in their fantastic Riverside Stadium. The thrills of Kings Island just minutes away, and I'll be leading a kayak trip down the scenic Little Miami River on Saturday. Again, get full details and get your tickets now on our Badass Fest 6 page at baldmove.com slash live live. Here are the highlights coming up this week on Bald Move. Our coverage of Hot D, Fire and Blood, and the 1980s Shogun miniseries continues. But then on Tuesday, for the first time in 35 years, we asked a question. Who framed Roger Rabbit? Hop aboard the train to Toontown as we revisit this incredible blending of live action and animation to see if it still holds up all this time later. Then on Wednesday, we get our first look at Blake Crouch's mind-bending sci-fi series, Dark Matter. First two episodes drop simultaneously on Apple TV Plus, and we'll have a pair of podcasts quantumly linked ready for you to observe. You can find these and many other great podcasts by searching for Bald Move Pulp or Bald Move Prestige in your favorite podcast app. Hey, it's time for another season of Why Is Mr. Feeney a Car? The premise is simple. A Gen Xer and a millennial watch old 80s action TV to see what still works and what doesn't. In previous seasons, we've done podcasts for Knight Rider, Airwolf, MacGyver, A-Team, and more. However, this year we're doing a very special season of Feeny. We're going back and reviewing the very special episodes of 80s and 90s sitcoms. Come cringe along with us as Hollywood tries to warn our families of the dangers of underage smoking, drug abuse, alcoholism, eating disorders, and much more. We start out with the episode of Boy Meets World where a high school kid gets sucked into a cult. Worlds collide as the Mr. Feeney finally makes an appearance on Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? Join me and my buddy Jay each week for episodes full of nostalgia and secondhand embarrassment. And don't worry, if very special isn't your speed, we've also got some all-time classic Knight Rider episodes to close the season with. Find Why is Mr. Feeney a Car? each Wednesday on Bald Move Pulp starting April 3rd. For this week's Bird's Eye View, I will return to both themes that we've been covering over these last 10 episodes, that being Knighthood and Trial by Combat. This is an excerpt of my conversation with Steve about the Ridley Scott film The Last Duel. Only mild spoilers here, and I say mild because I'm introducing a historical fact about the duel that did not make it into the film. But if you are sensitive to even mild spoilers, absolutely stop the podcast now. 
Here's comic Steve Osborne. My one to grow on is that if ever I need to ride a horse, I'm going to need a staircase. <laughs> yeah. I want a staircase to get up onto the horse. I want a staircase to get off the horse. I don't know why everyone who needs to be on horseback doesn't have a staircase. See, I'm at that age where I'm like, stairs. Oof, that, even that's a show. <laughs> Can, can we put an escalator next to this animal? Yeah. So I look at that and go, well, that's great for getting off the horse. But I don't know how you got me up there. Uh, I want to I throw out a detail that I learned about trial by combat. Go for it. The thing that I learned that I didn't know before that you wouldn't learn by watching Game of Thrones is that... You were not allowed to fight someone in a trial by combat that wasn't your equal. So in this story, Carouge is a knight. He's been knighted. Mm-hmm. But Legree is only a squire. Mm-hmm. And so before they allowed this trial by combat to happen, they had to promote Legree to knighthood. So he got knighted because he was accused of rape. And then challenged to a trial by combat that's how he got knighted that's wild it kind of exposes a misplaced mythology around knights uh, right you know that this you know these are supposed to be men of honor here we have an, an example of someone who was knighted just so he could fight in this trial by combat <laughs> right so now i don't like when you see like musicians getting knighted now i don't feel so bad <laughs> Like, Sir Sir Sting is fine. So we could see Sting and Elton John in a trial by combat. <laughs> because they're equals. In fact, I now crave that. <laughs> if you'd like to hear the full interview, Cocoons of Horror, search for that wherever you search for podcasts. If you're interested in watching the film, I will say this. It will trigger some folks. It's very heavy. It's very violent. And the film itself deals with rape culture. So keep that in mind before you choose to watch it. And that is all for this week.